yes, we do have some deliveries, but it's only a fraction of what uh, the open interest is. You can see here only three gold deliveries on the October contract, none on the December contract on volume of 360,000. So again, the COMEX is not a big delivery market. Deliveries do come off of it, and it's why they're draining metal, but it's not as big of a delivery market as the Shanghai, which we pointed out on the last broadcast. And yes, I'm going to start covering the Shanghai. Um... Welcome to Gold Silver Pros. Hey everyone, this is your host, Rob Keens of goldsilverpros.com. This is the weekly market wrap-up, and I'm recording this on October 28, 2022. You guys will see it in a day or two when it comes out on our channel, Gold Silver Pros, as well as at JM Bullion. I wanted to talk about what is going on in the economy this week. Of course, we watch all the economic data, and there are several key data points that really matter this week, and we're going to go over them. The first is to go over the U.S. manufacturing PMI and the U.S. services PMI to see how healthy our economy is doing. As you guys all know, we are mo uh, mostly a service-based economy, although we do have some manufacturing, so we tend to watch both, and those data points came out on Monday. Both are in contraction under a print of 50, which means they're not growing. Manufacturing is at 49.9, really about an even number. You could say it's stagnant, not really growing or not growing, but it's technically on the shrinking side by 0.1. U.S. Uh, services PMI, the bigger part of the economy, has fallen solidly below 50. It's at a 46.6 print, which means the service economy is contracting. Both are less than what economists had expected. They had expected a 51.8 print in the positive territory for manufacturing. We got under that by about two uh, points. And they expected a 49.7 print on services, and we're below that on three points. So de uh, definitely the economists tend to be lagging what's actually going on in the economy and their predictions right now are not all that accurate. We are decelerating faster than they believe. Looking at the Case-Shiller U.S. Home Price Index, we covered that quite a bit on our channel last week, indicating that we're having a real estate turnover heading into a crash. Well, that number came in at negative 9.8% from Case-Shiller, the most respected nationwide survey of home prices. And that is much below the, expect, uh, the number last a month, which was negative 5.3%. So U.S. home price index continues to fall faster and faster uh, each month that it's measured. And that is a sign of a crash coming in the housing market. The FHFA U.S. home price index had a negative 7.6% print. That was slightly worse than the negative 7.3 of last month. And a result of all these numbers, the consumer confidence index has fallen to 102.5 from 107.8. That is a sentiment indicator about how consumers feel about the economy. And it was worse than economies than economic um, the economists expected this month of 106.3. The trade in goods uh, or the account current account balance for the United States is negative 92.2 billion. That means that we are buying 92.2 billion more than we have sold for uh, last month, which is not a great number. And uh, that number is falling faster. And the reason for that is because the dollar is strong and therefore it allows us to buy more goods. And therefore we are going to be more of a purchasing nation than a selling nation, which is not good for the economy long-term because it means the manufacturing that we have because of the strong dollar, uh, we're gonna continue to buy from overseas and manufacturing is not going to come back while it's cheaper to buy goods from overseas than it is to make them here. And that's one of the issues with having a quote-unquote strong dollar. Real uh, gross domestic product actually came in positive for the first time in uh, over two quarters. We had negative GDP prints for two straight quarters. Now we've had a positive one. It came in at 2.6%. Uh, likely, economists will then say that we are out of the recession, officially don't have one. That could be true, except for the underlying economic numbers are not great. And I would argue that gross domestic product is up largely because of the dollar 
And when you decrement gross domestic product for the 8% inflation that we're having right now, we're actually negative in terms of overall economic output. But because the government doesn't look at it like that, they only look at the simplistic domestic product number without discounting inflation or looking at the strong uh, dollar in the currency, we're going to get, uh, oh, the economy is recovering. In fact, I think Biden uh, was quoted as laughing, saying, see, we have a strong economic recovery, which we don't. We're negative about five and a half percent when you mix in CPI, but at least there is a positive economic print, and you're going to see that all across mainstream media. Initial jobless claims are up, uh, although there are less than economists expected. Last month, initial jobless claims are 214,000. This month, they are 217,000 on expectations of 220. So we did better than what economists expected, but still worse than the previous month, which means more jobless claims are coming in, which means uh, labor is actually not recovering. Unemployment is not recovering uh, as fast as the mainstream media will tell you. Continuing jobless claims, the ones that have put in for multiple months, multiple periods, is higher at 1.44 million. Last month, it was 1.38 million. Again, another data point suggesting we do not have a true economic recovery. Core capital equipment orders. These are uh, capital equipment for big businesses to make things in the economy are, of course, down 0.7%. That doesn't surprise because the U.S. manufacturing PMI is also decelerating. It's under 50. So our core capital equipment orders that we use to uh, produce things is also down. That makes sense. Employment cost index is up 5.1%. It means that the cost to, to have employees is up, although it is decelerating just a little bit. Last month, it was 5.4%. And that is it for the economic numbers this week. Taking a preview for next week, we're going to get the Chicago Purchasing Manager Index to see how the purchasing man managers in the economy feel about it. That'll be an indication of what's coming down the line for the retail sector. We'll look at U.S. manufacturing PMI, ISM manufacturing index, uh, job openings, construction spending, motor vehicle sales, and then the big numbers are going to be employment. So it's the first week of the month. So we'll get both the ADP employment report next Wednesday, November 2nd. And on Friday, the big one, the non-farm payrolls. And that'll tell us how employment is going, although it's going to be a skewed number. And I'll add in the labor force participation rate, which comes out also on Friday. And that typically indicates the real employment levels in the economy. Uh, talking more about the economy growing, the GDP print, there's an article here at Market Watch that I'll be quoting from. They say, and I quote, the economy grew at an annual 2.6% pace in the third quarter, rebounding from two consecutive declines in the first half of the year that ignited debate about whether the U.S. has sunk into a recession. The official resumption of growth was driven largely by a shrinking trade deficit and mass emerging uh, weak spots in the economy. Most uh, economists also warn the good news might not last. They predict a recession is due by next year. So uh, the experts are saying the same thing I said. With a stronger dollar, that masks, are we really in uh, uh, a increasing economy or is it just the strong dollar and the current account balance, which allows us to uh, produce more in dollar terms? And if I add on to that, if you subtract out inflation, we're actually not growing as an economy because we have a much higher inflation print than we do a GDP print. Uh, the chief, going back to the article, the chief source of the rebound in gross domestic product, the scorecard of sorts for the economy, was a shrinking trade deficit. As they point out, something I also pointed out, the main engine of the economy, consumer spending, has remained relatively stable this year. Household outlays grew in the third quarter by 1.4% rate. Again, if you add in inflation, that's just the, the more powerful dollar in the inflation, uh, not an actual more actual goods being spent by the consumer. And so I'm always going to decrement these numbers by inflation to show you we're actually not growing. So you have to look beyond just the headline number. Uh, headline here at CNBC for today, and this is as of uh, 12.54 p.m. Central Time on Friday, October 28th. 
Uh, the Dow rallies 700 points on Friday, heads for fourth straight winning week. Uh, stock, ro- I'm quoting from the article, stocks rose on Friday despite a tumble in Amazon shares after economic data pointed to slowing inflation and a steady consumer. The Dow Jones Industrial Average added 70, 771 points or 2.4%. The S&P 500 gained 2%. And the NASDAQ fought higher and was up by 2.5%. I wanted to point out that, however, we're having continued pressure on earnings reports. I'm going to give you the picture of earnings reports for the corporate sector over the last several years. But I wanted to point out that uh, Amazon is having issues. Amazon plunged by 10% after the company posted weaker than expected quarterly revenue and issued disappointing fourth quarter sales guidance Thursday. Apple shares were initially lower to an extended trading Thursday. I also noted earlier in this week in another broadcast that Amazon Web Services and cloud is the only thing basically keeping it afloat. So the cloud has done well, although the cloud for Microsoft is not doing as well. So not all cloud products are doing well. So we don't know whether in the future, Amazon cloud is expected to continue to grow and save the company, essentially. Apple and other positive performers like Intel have given investors footholds within what some see as a particularly tumultuous tech sector, subsequently providing upward pressure. The tech-heavy uh, NASDAQ is reporting CNBC, although I will, report, I will point out that most of the companies trading in the NASDAQ aren't doing well. It's upheld by a few at the top, and some of those uh, are starting to come under pressure. We're going to go to the screen share, and I'm going to point out a nice little chart that I had in a Jam Bullion article I wrote um, and printed on October 26th earlier this week. Recession or no recession, that is the question. Those of you not aware, I'm, I'm now writing for Jam Bullion and also doing videos on their YouTube channel providing content for them. And in this article, I want to point out corporate earnings per share. This data is from FactSet. As you can see here, dating back to quarter three of 2018, that would be a solid four years of data. We've had a, a lot more negative prints on the economy than we had positive ones. The positive ones here in green and the negative ones. Now, the positive ones were the temporary recovery from the pandemic shutdowns, but I'll highlight and point out that we were negative growth way before the shutdowns ever happened. So it wasn't the shutdowns that were causing companies to lose money. They had been bleeding money for a solid two years overall in the economy when aggregated before COVID. And it was actually the restart of COVID that gave us our positive GDP prints. And why would they give us positive GDP prints? Because it, the economy had been shrinking for two years. We had this big collapse in COVID. And then we had a minor restart positive earnings reports, but since then they've fallen back down. So in other words, the COVID restart gave us a temporary boost, but we never recovered everything that we had lost two years prior. And that temporary boost only lasted for a while because the overall economy was not recovering. And so therefore we've headed back in negative territory. This would seem to counteract the reports that COVID caused the economy a crash and it was rosy before. And that now that we have a nice recovery from COVID, we're back in green territory. We haven't recovered to where we were dating back to Q3 of 2018, even with the benefits of the restart. So corporate earnings are not up and overall have not been for four years. Therefore, there's no reason to expect that the economy is recovering or that the current stock market valuations, the price to earnings ratio we have in the market make any sense. Because overall, when the corporate sector is faltering, why would the stock markets begin or continue to rise and continue to show value if we're not earning money? Price to earnings ratios, uh, high elevated price to earnings ratios only make sense in a rising corporate earnings environment. That's not what we've had for the last four years. And this data basically proves it. Moving over to the gold trade, we're going to do our gold review as we always do. I would say a moderate amount of trading going on in terms of volume and, and uh, open interest. In terms of the December contract, which is the dominant contract for the end of the year for both silver and gold, we can see that we had open interest in gold of 360,703 contracts. As you can see here, 
We had uh, EFP or the exchange for fiscal between the U.S. and U.K. markets at 5,868. That is a very large number when averaged. And it means either people are going to London trading their futures position for gold or they're playing arbitrage between the U.S. and COMEX prices. Either one. I suspect a lot of this is gold deliveries are not getting on the COMEX. They're having to move over to London because both of those markets support each other with that EFP mechanism. Looking at the price settlement data, this is as of Friday, October 28th, as you can see up here. That's data so far, it's not final data, but you can see overall that we're unchanged about sideways in the gold market on estimated volume of 108,000 contracts. That's early data for today. That's not finalized. So let's look at back at the last closing day that we have for the December contract. You can see here that we had estimated volume of 191,000 contracts of 100 ounce gold settled at an average price of 1665.60. That's down $3.60. If we look at Wednesday, we had a settlement of 1664.40, up $11 on estimated volume of 188,052. If we look at earlier in the week to Tuesday, the gold contracts on the December, 183,326, healthy volume there, closing an average of 1658.0, up $3.90. We'll get to the COT report in a moment, which will show you why these numbers did what they did. Over to the silver futures now talking silver again, relatively average volume being traded. No big spike here uh, dating back to the 21st. So in about a week, we've had what I consider a normal silver market, not too much uh, over interest, not too much less interest, just a nice healthy market. Again, trading on the December 22, 2022 contract, as you can see here, I'm going to make this a wee bit bigger for you guys so you can see it. Uh, EFP 825 silver contracts. People were trying to get physical silver from London, trading off of the COMEX or just arbitraging the price in a, in a cash position. And open interest uh, is 107732 as we look at it. Deliveries only 233 The thing I want to point out in both gold and silver, I'm going to go back to gold, is yes, we do have some deliveries, but it's only a fraction of what uh, the open interest is. You can see here only three gold deliveries on the October contract, none on the December contract on volume of 360000 so again, the COMEX is not a big delivery market. Deliveries do come off of it, and it's why they're draining metal, but it's not as big of a delivery market as the Shanghai, which we pointed out on the last broadcast. And yes, I'm going to start covering the Shanghai. Um, each and every video, I do this so that we can look at what's going on in China as I think that market becomes more relevant. Now, we'll cover it on a monthly basis in terms of volume and deliveries because that's the way they publish the data, not on a daily basis like COMEX, but on a daily basis or on a weekly basis when we do this video, we will cover the price differences, which I think you guys will find to be very interesting. Okay, back to silver on COMEX. Again, December is the dominant contract for trading and delivery on the COMEX for silver, estimated volume so far today, this is Friday's data, not closing data, just so far about halfway through the day, 27,237 contracts and silver's trading down 34 cents at an average price 19.14. That's why you see the price as it is the spot price. This determines the spot price. This settlement price here, this column right here, basically turns into the spot price you pay at your dealer. That's how that's determined for those that didn't know. Going back to Thursday's data, the last full day of data that we have, 59,773 contract volume settled at 19,494. That was up eight cents. Yesterday was an up day for silver. Moving to Wednesday, two days ago, again on the December contract, estimated volume 56,364, settling at 19,48, .48, up 13 cents. So this week, not too bad for silver overall. Moving on to commitment of traders, this is in arrears. The uh, COT report from the CFTC is in arrear, so we have as of October 18, 2022, but these numbers will tell you what these numbers are, because these are the current uh, trade or current aggregated trade data. These are the individual positions of who's doing it that leads up to what has happened in the market that week, if that makes any sense. 
So now we're looking at the individual groups of traders and what they're doing, which led to the prices that we see here that make up the spot that you pay at your dealer. Looking at silver, um, commodity exchange, disaggregated commitment of traders, October 18th, 2022. The producer merchant class usually is typically short because they're shorting downward prices of movement, especially the producers, 28,136. They dropped 2,600 short contracts, netted 2,900 long. A lot of that probably is going to go to either extinguishing some shorts um, of the, the producers or going to the merchants who expect higher prices going forward. And they're hedging against uh, their exposure to higher silver prices because they need it to manufacture. So that's a, a cost pressure on their business. Moving over to swap dealers or the sharps or the smart money or the bullion banks, as I call them, you can see that they dropped 1,123 short contracts in silver and dropped 248 long for a net increase of about 900 contracts to the long side. They're still net long at 43,179, net short 30, I'm sorry, short 3876 for a net net position of about 12,300 or so it looks. Managed money, which are like the hedge funds and the financial houses, are still short silver, 44,077. They're not the smart money typically in this particular market. They may be in others, but precious metals usually get their money taken from them by the swap dealers and other players. They're net short. They're probably on the opposite side of the trade. Don't expect them to do well going forward, but it's worthy to note their position because it's a very big trading group. And the managed money basically represents the billions and trillions of dollars in the stock market and the passive uh, market. So this is a big market of money. They can come in here with a lot of contracts and lose a lot of money before it ever hits their bottom line. That's why they tend not to be the sharps because <clears throat> it's easier for them to lose money, but their overall portfolio stay okay because they're not that much into this market. And that's how uh, the swap dealers can get away with making money taking the opposite position of the managed money. Okay, other reportables are wealthy individuals, family offices. They're net long about mm, 9,000 contracts on silver. It makes sense to me. They expect the price to rise. Moving on to gold. Again, futures through October 18, 2022. This is about 10-day-old data, but it tells us where the prices went last week on the COMEX. And we see that the producer merchants are net short although they dropped 4,330 short contracts in gold and went long 2,773, the producer merchants both expect gold price to go up and they changed, it went almost 7,000 contracts, now over 7,000 contracts net net to the long side. If you look at these two numbers, add those two numbers up, they dropped the 4,330 shorts and added 2,770 longs at 7,000 net shift to the long side producer merchants. Swap dealers also going net long. They dropped 7,000 gold contracts. They're deleveraging out of their short gold position. Again, this is the bullion banks or the sharps or the smart money. And they dropped only 557 longs, probably rotating out of certain contracts. Net, net, they have gone net long about 6,500 contracts here. And as you can see, even though they're not quite double short position as long net, net, they have been leveraging out of their shorts the last few months. I think longer term, they expect gold to go up, and so do I, and I'll give you my opinion on that in a minute. The managed money is net short in gold, uh, although they and they did add 15,000 short contracts, or 15,000 contracts to the short side, taking everything that both the swap dealers and the producer merchants wanted to give them. They're now more exposed to downward price, uh, price movement in gold uh, by 10,000 contracts this week. And I think that they're going to be the duped money and they're going to lose money. They're net short about 25, 26,000 contracts. The family offices and other smart individuals and wealthy individuals are net long gold to the tune of about 100,000 contracts net net, which is a ton. So the smart individual money and family offices are betting big 
on Ford prices in gold going higher. Going to the ETFs, typically the ETFs give us a good picture of what's going on in the London market because most of the ETF gold and silver is stored in London. Not all of it. Some of it's in the U.S. and other places, but it gives us a good read. And if you look at COMEX, the numbers are here. I'm really going to go over the ETFs. We're looking here. And net-net, the ETFs have lost gold. When you add in what's on the COMEX, there's been a net loss of four weeks, rolling four weeks of uh, almost 3 million ounces. And if we look at the GLD, which is the largest of the ETFs, you can see that there's been a decrease in the amount of ETF ounces held. So gold is starting to bleed out of the London market through the ETFs and some through the American market as well. If you look at COMEX and some of the ones that store their gold on the American uh, depositories as well. Moving on to silver ETFs. We look in net-net over the last four weeks, down 15 million ounces. Most of that's through COMEX. There's been some bleeding of silver through uh, ETF securities, PHAG, SIVR. The SLV has actually been adding silver the last three weeks I've been doing this. This time they add 3.4 million ounces. Now their net-net still down, but there's been a reversal of uh, ounces coming into SLV. In the London market, you can see that little reversal here. Now, it's this little reversal here, this little tiny little reversal you see here is a drop in the bucket compared to what's come off dating back to silver squeeze, January, February of 2021. So a little bit of silver is coming in, but not much. And that goes to show you that that, that, that market on silver in London is not that liquid because it's mostly coming off and not much coming on. That is not a super liquid market right now. I wanted to move on to price and compare the US markets with the Chinese market. Last video I did last week, I looked at the amount of fiscal deliveries in the Chinese market and, their, and uh, what's going on there for both gold and silver. They only produce that once a month, so it'll be next month when I when I do that review again. But in, in the intervening weeks, we can look at price and it's important to look at price. If you look dating back to the beginning of the year, gold is net down about this much on the COMEX and silver is net down about this much. But if you look at gold on the Chinese market, you get different. If we look at the gold uh, price mark, price, uh, benchmark, gold is actually up on the Chinese ex exchange dating back to the year. So it's gone from 367.86 to tell 394. And that's with the, the fall off uh, during the March timeframe that the American markets also expected in the gold price. So everything began selling off across the world here, but the Shanghai has recovered quite nicely and is up net net year to date. If you look at the American market, it is down net net. Okay, who's buying more gold and who's selling more? The US market is selling more. The Chinese are buying more. The gold is flowing west to east. Again, the physical gold is flowing west to east. Add up the data points and we'll add two and two together. Most of the gold is coming off of the COMEX. You can see that in the charts here and here, and it's moving and it's coming off of both London and the US. This is US market. This is London with some US uh, in. It's coming off. But as you see that the price rising in China and it's a heavy delivery market, meaning it's coming east, they're settling the physical coming off of COMEX in London into China. China's taking that metal. Either it's the sovereign nation taking it or it's interest in China, industrial and other interests in China taking the gold. That's why the gold price is higher because the gold is moving west to east physically and it's being reflected in the markets. That is a huge data point to take into account about who's going to have the gold and who values the gold. Obviously, China does. Looking at the silver benchmark chart, uh, silver is net net down in China, although not down as much as the American market. Going back to the American market on gold price, sorry. Here's silver, it's down quite a bit from about 24, it was about 
23 something to start the year down to 1921 so it's down about probably four bucks on the year it's not down nearly as much in the shanghai it's down a little bit from uh 4700 on that contract to 4584 a lesser percentage drop i'm not going to convert that to american dollars i'm just looking at percentages because it's all that matters it doesn't matter dollar count it just matters that the gold and silver is much more delivered in shanghai than it is in london or comex the price is staying higher because it's a delivery market. That means they're taking the West gold and silver and absorbing it into China. Now, the Shanghai is just a port of entry into the Chinese market. It doesn't mean it could be somebody else taking it out of China, using it for something. Maybe it's a Korean manufacturer making TVs. Maybe it's Apple. Maybe it's the sovereigns of China saying we need gold and silver and we're going to take it off the Western market because the government needs it. We don't know. We just know it's flowing west-east, and that's what the data tells us. I also want to point out for the last two days, October 27th and October 28th, the settlement price in China is higher. So the one conversion they do between yuan to dollars is on this chart, and I'm just going to go over the last couple of days for you. And I've noticed that the difference in price between the two markets is about 43 bucks. So if you look at COMEX Gold Futures, 1664, if you look at uh, the price, the equivalent American price on for the, about the same contract on the Shanghai exchange at 1707 for an uh, increase of 43 bucks. So for $43 increase for gold between China and the US, that means that China is paying $43 more per ounce of gold. That's why the physical is moving. China China has figured out, and not only China that runs the, the Shanghai, but also all the players that play through the Shanghai, companies, banks, all that, individual traders, know that China and that part of the world values gold more. And so what they're doing is they're using arbitrage between the London and the COMEX markets here in the US, and they're getting a higher price in, in China, which is a higher physically settled market, which means the gold, is, again, is flowing uh, west to east. And uh, for yesterday's data, it's actually up a little bit, or today's data is actually up a little bit more. It's $43.20, the difference. And so you can see right there that the Chinese are basically taking the gold from the West. That's how you figure that out. And that's why we cover that market here. The big news is corporate earnings are not quite what we expected, um, what we expected that they were going to be. And uh, that's led to a more positive environment for uh, gold and silver, I think, going forward, because the, the gold is just being bled West to East. And I think if you look at the economy and what's going on, corporate earnings with the consumer, we're definitely in a recession, and I don't know how soon we're going to come out of that. But regardless of dollar and CPI, uh, it tends to uh, downplay the positive GDP numbers that we have. That's going to do it for the weekly market wrap-up. Stay tuned for the metals update. Searching for the best precious metals deal? Shop with our trusted partner, Arc Silver. Access special deals on silver, gold, and platinum through our website, or call 307 264 9441. Hey, everybody. Uh, Ian Everard Arc Silver is back to do his appearance on the show for the weekly metals update. Ian, uh, first question I want to ask you what's going on in the physical side of the market? Uh, last oh, couple of months, you've been coming on, I guess. We've been talking about tightness in the market. Of course, we've been covering you know, what's happening to the inventories and the big stockpiles and the COMEX and in the UK. Um, and speculating on who may have the next billion ounces, if anybody does, or if we're going to have a true shortage condition. Um, in the retail side of the market, uh, you, you work between the wholesalers, you know, and, and the end users. 
what what is it looking like? Are is there availability of product now from the wholesalers? Are there delays? Because I'm hearing different things. I've heard, you know, on on Twitter, the wholesalers are delayed, but there's enough for retail right now. Is that true, or what? You know, can you uh, tell us what's going on? Okay, I mean, from the research I've done, I would say the the supply in the retail system is very thin. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously. I try not to play the game, but it, it, we all do in retail. We all look at everybody else's prices mm. and you can go through item after item on the guys who have the online sites, not available, not available. Call me, call me. I've never seen so many items not, not available. Right. Um, also from the wholesalers, we have the, the transition, the 2023 coins traditionally come out late October um the royal mint decided to go early this year and with the queen dying we've got the complications a lot of there's a lot of wholesalers holding back 2022s and 2023s till they till they can ascertain what the supply is going forward they would rather sell a, a, a smaller amount but still have something to sell in the future at an increased premium and have nothing to sell in the future. So, you know, every business is trying to stay in business. And unfortunately, it's the public gets hit with, ex my, my opinion, excessive premiums. Now, that's an interesting topic. Um, so premiums are markup over spot. We know spot is balderdash. Let's just leave it there. It, it's a garbage number. It's on the derivative market. Does not reflect supply. It does reflect people's expectations of the paper market in the in, in the board yeah. contract right now both gold and silver for december so everybody's betting think of you pull up to mgm you go in there's a special counter for you to bet on where you think gold and silver is going to be in two months that's what the derivative markets are and that's what spots determined by it means nothing with regards to the physical market <clears throat> and so i always thought the premiums were a function of the demand for the metals uh there were a more realistic view on what the price is and people complain about premiums over spot as if people are gouging, but if spot is manufactured price has nothing to do with reality. How much blame on the premiums do we put on the gold industry, the ones that are providing it, you know, providing the supply chain to get that gold out and how much do we put on the gamblers speculating on it? And I'll remind people oil went up to about 140 bucks years ago cost us to have over $5 diesel and, and, and put a massive shock in the system. I personally know truck drivers put out business by that, Yeah, but it was never $140 a barrel to get it out of the ground. No. So how much uh, of a function of premium is greed by the industry versus a crappy pricing mechanism to determine spot in the first place? Do you have a read on that? Yeah. I mean, the whole system is dysfunctional. Yeah. To not have retail, have access to the refinery production. Mm -hmm. So you have so many bottlenecks. You have a bottleneck of the mine product going into the refineries to make the thousand ounce bars. That's tight. And you probably well remember Jeff Christian's response at the Silver Symposium last year when yes. I questioned him, why are the refiners purchasing their bars mm -hmm. off the open market and reselling them? Yep. And my suspicion then, my conclusion then was there was a shortage of mine supply. So there's a whole lot of dysfunction. There's a shortage of mine supply. I think part of that is China has been taking Dore and concentrate straight from mines, and that's completely off the books. There's no real record of that that is publicly available. That's private privilege information. 
And even if they were taking a small amount, that's going to squeeze the amount going to the refiners, especially with a year-on-year deficit from demand to supply on silver. Um, sorry about the long answer, but there's a lot lot going on here. And then you've got a, a traditional minting system. Um, North America takes a lot from the European mints because North America has been a very good market. There's a lot of people understand the value of precious metals in North America and have been buying for decades. Mm-hmm. That's built up big business for the European uh, mints. Now they're getting squeezed on buying the thousand ounce bars from the refiners. So they're actually, I've heard this straight from some of the top Swiss mints, they're buying contracts off the COMEX, settling for physical and having it shipped to Europe. And they're using that to make product. And and I can quote one of the presidents of one of the top refiners. I can quote what he said. And he said, and it's never going back into the COMEX. What he meant is once it gets turned into high-end Valcambi or Germania or Harias bars, that's not going to get scrapped and melted down. It's never going back into the bullion system. Yeah, essentially what we're saying is everybody's scr- – it, it, oh, I'll back up just a second. When you have supply chain issues that have nothing to do with COVID and the pandemic with silver, has to do with mine availability four straight years according to Silver Institute um, on shortages, including 2022, which they expect to be a shortage and so far has played out in, in mine supply. Inventory is drained. And then we see what happened at the Perth Mint. We see what happened with reports of hypothecation on the London market, lack of um, uh, not only agreement, but a lack of confidence in the COMEX system and how much is available, which led uh, the the people that run the COMEX to come out with a letter, I think it was April 19th of last year, which basically said, we don't know how much of the stored metal could ever come back to the exchange. At least 50% probably won't because it's in private hands. I would say probably more until we get much higher prices. So there are shortages everywhere. You have schemes where people are leasing it out like the Perth Mint. Uh, you have schemes where ETFs are saying you can no longer convert, leading to questions about whether they have it. Uh, you have these pooled and unallocated agreements for storage where people have a claim a, a, a claim on a bar that can be substituted with something else of lesser quality. Look at SLV, for example, or look at some of the other storage agreements and some providers. So the, the industry kind of set itself up there because... If you look at the entire industry, and making a long point here, but if you look at the entire industry, it a lot of it is set up to, to, per the tradition of gold, which was the gold goes in the hands of the gold dealers, they fractional reserve it out and give an IOU, and um, and then you know that's how the kings finance their war, so on and so forth. Well, that's still happening today. Yeah. There are you know, a crap ton of IOUs in the system and not yeah. enough metal to back it up. And we're seeing that. We did the Perthman expose. We've had questions over every every major market who has what. There's a lack of transparency. So I kind of go two ways with this. Either there's a lot of metal that we don't know about or there's almost no metal. Um, in either case, there, there there's not a true accounting of that. So how does a person deal with that risk? If, you, if you're like, I want to buy bars, you know, how do you deal with that risk? If you're a big company, maybe you front run the comics and go to the miners and a sovereign like China. What do you do if you're an individual and how do you get the stuff that you need? And how much risk do you think, having been inside the system, there actually is that it's really 
the latter case, we think that there isn't a lot of metal available. Um, opinion. So yeah, disclaimer, my opinion, mm-hmm. too many people know how scarce silver is and what its true value will be, that it doesn't matter if it takes one week, one month or one year, price discovery will happen. And people who are waiting to pick up on the next dip or the next dip, mm-hmm. it's not going to be there. Already I'm rationed on, on a lot of product, either rationed in actual total amount I can buy of a, of a bar or a coin or rationed by not willing to, to pay up now and wait till January. As a retailer, I would lose a lot of business if I told clients, yeah, send me your money now. You'll get your metal late January. <laughs> This is going to grow, and also the premiums are going to rise, and they're going to rise faster. I'll call it out now. So if any of the big online guys are listening and you know who you are, you are going to keep pushing your premiums up. You're all looking at each other's premiums. You're going to keep pumping them up, partly because you have to, but partly because you're profiteering, but also because your volumes are dropping because you've not got unlimited product coming in in the door, and you still need to maintain a certain amount of profit to stay in business. I know some companies are highly levered. Um, I won't say which one, but I know they've borrowed 20 million to build a, a storage facility. Well, they've got to keep earning to pay the, the pay, pay the bills on that. Um, so yeah, it is a dysfunction of the system. And there's some small players like Silverback Precious Metals who have broken the chains. So they're taking the thousand ounce bars and processing them. We're about to do that as well under their umbrella. But we need more people to do that, I think, to to break the stranglehold. Um, is there collusion? I don't think there's direct collusion, but it would appear a lot of the retail market is being controlled by the people we don't like. You know, hate the Wall Street banks, the, the, the ultimate beneficial owners are making it harder and harder for retail to buy. And when spot is low, the premiums are pumped up. And I don't think it's completely accidental or or, ne- or necessary. Okay. Switching gears real quick, because we always like talk macro, and we were talking something very interesting before the program about the UK prime minister. I believe that the recent prime minister was there for 44 or 45 days. In either case, it was the shortest tenure in the history of prime ministers for the UK. That That's noteworthy because the UK is a long, well-established country. What do you think caused that? I mean, it, it almost in a way seems like a setup. I don't know if intentional or not, but she came in. What was she going to do? And the idea to do this stuff probably wasn't hers anyway. She'd only been in the office for a month. It backfires. She, she's out. New guy's in. Goldman Sachs guy. Um, it, for us in America, which may or, or in other areas like Europe may not understand your system. Can you kind of explain how all that went down and and how that could happen so quickly where one PM is out, another one's in? And it's not the popular vote like it may be here in the U.S. It's a different process, a little bit different. Can you just explain that for people? Yeah, sure. Basically, we have members of parliament. So anybody can set up a political party and try and get a majority of votes in set areas that elect a member of parliament. Whoever gets the majority forms a government. Um, Then that majority of MPs who form the government choose their leader Now, typically, a leader will be chosen, well, always before an election. So people are voting for the party, but also potentially voting for the leader. 
But once that party is in power for a term of five years, the only way that party can be removed from power is if there's a vote of no confidence. So a majority of MPs would have to say we have no confidence in the government. So that would mean a party who has a majority would be voting against their leader. So yes, a bit convoluted, but basically the party in power could change their leader every week if they wanted to. <laughs> okay. But the most important person possibly is the chancellor and we're on four chancellors in four months now that must be a record even for any um third world basket case of a of a country i don't i'm sure no, no country's ever matched four chancellors in four months but yeah i mean you you mentioned that shanak comes from goldman sachs was his first career and then he was a hedge fund he's an incredibly wealthy person and good good to him he's made a fortune but my concern is we don't trust Goldman Sachs. We don't trust these big banks. We know they don't have our interests at heart. They're just, the whole system is to extract as much wealth as possible out by, by any means, whether legal or illegal. Um, so my concern is he was probably the, 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 the preferred candidate and the other one got in by mistake. And so she's been forced out for, uh, yeah, for a Goldman Sachs boy. Um, I'm very concerned. Do you, um, is there anything from the UK economic crisis kind of looking at the bigger picture there, not specifically politically, but more economically that you think could occur elsewhere or any lessons we can learn? I always try to look at things and say, okay, what can we learn from this? What, what from that do you think that we could take away in America? And, and I mean, at individual level, I don't, I have zero confidence in either political party in America to do anything remotely sensible for the people at this point, they're lost. They're lost. They're done. Okay. It, unless we can get a true third party, which our system won't allow. But I mean, for the individual people, what can we learn from what's going on in the UK? Is there anything? I think the thing of greatest consequence is it's proven that the Western pension system is fake. Mm -hmm. It collects premium for maybe 40 years of somebody's working life and supposedly promises to pay them enough to, to live on in retirement for unlimited number of years, maybe 40 years, maybe even 50 years. That's not going to pay out in purchasing power. They've gone out on leverage to try and get 7% returns in a 0% world. They're forced to hold government debt, a certain amount of it, by the legis legislation that government's right which enables their profligate overspending, continued overspending. So the lesson we can learn is that problem is coming here. The problem is here. It just hasn't been exposed. The whole pension scheme is a fraud. You are not going to get back the effort you put in. It's true. And a lot of those retirement systems, uh, you know, pensions there are, are it's a, Ponzi scheme, which works as long as demographics work in your favor, as soon as the next group of payers in, uh, the next generations either either is smaller and don't have enough people paying in, or uh, they're not as wealthy and can't pay as much in, which I think both things are happening to different countries around the world. People's pay relative to expenses is going down, so it's not funding the value in the pensions. And there are the demographically there's an issue with the people not paying in, especially a lot of pensions have been ended 
And so it's up to the the people running the pensions just to seek higher returns. Of course, you take on risk and you get more junk in there. So it doesn't surprise me, I guess, the pensions are coming under trouble. Um, I, I think that we'll probably see this across the economy, you know, as we go forward and maybe a bit of a cautionary tale, tale for people about, you know, pensions and those types of investments. Another thing, Ian, that I hear on the radio all the time here in the States is people pushing annuities and they're guaranteeing a certain amount of return, no matter what the market does. And even if the market crashes, you know, 50% and they say, well, we won't take you below zero. And I'm like, okay, how do you do that? Yeah. If, if you're a fund, whether it be a pension or one of these annuities or any fund, any vehicle doesn't matter. And you're investing in a system in which you're guaranteeing people can only win, even though the underlying investment in that system is crashing right now. Yeah. How, what do you think is going to be the consequence of this or any of these investments that a lot of these financial planners here in the U S are pumping, you know, are they going to be solvent? Because if the market goes down, how long can an entity running a pension or an annuity scheme would basically be a similar scheme, how can they continue to make payments when the market is crashing and how solvent actually are those? Well, they can only make payments till till their pot pot is empty. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in the pension system in Britain, they they were on leverage, and the, the value of the bonds they were holding fell dramatically. So they got margin called. So then they had to liquidate stuff um, holdings which had dropped. It was the worst time to be for, forcibly liquidate to to pay the margin calls. It's a it, it's a spiral. So it, it is a lie. They will not be able to pay out. A meaningful return. Um, so supposedly, the regulators will come in and wind them, wind them up, and merge them in with another company or or take them over. But either way, the the, the supposed recipient will lose out. We've seen numerous cases in America that's gone through the courts, and pensions have been cut in half to make this make the schemes whole again. And meanwhile, the people selling this, they're taking their commissions. Um, they may have they may have only been in the job for six months. Mm-hmm. Are they planning to be there for the full term for for the next forty years? Absolutely not. So that they have no skin in the game. The people who are selling these these products. Uh, what kind of deals do you have for our audience? We're going to go ahead and get this wrapped up when we make it too long. Well, what are you seeing out there, and what can you provide to people? Well, we have the full range. We have. Five ounce bars, ten ounce bars, kilo bars in silver, mm-hmm. um, hundred ounce bars, thousand ounce bars. We have Britannias, Maples, Philharmonics, Armenian Noah's Arks. Uh, we have silverback rounds, silverback slices. We have a healthy live inventory. Um, um, but I'm placing orders further and further out, trying to anticipate. So once we're selling through the livestock, we'll have replacement livestock. So it's it's a delicate, a delicate juggle. Not too much in a hurry to to sell. That sounds sounds very ironic for a retailer. I'd rather just have steady supply for existing clients and new clients. Um, so we're not doing any spectacular deals. We still nine times out of 10 are the best price. Um, that's what we founded the business on and that's what we'll try to keep on doing. We still have plenty of the, our own 10 ounce arc bars that James Forsyth makes in Maryland. Um, I actually, Ian, want to stop you there for a second. I'm traveling in San Diego, as, as people know. 
I've got one of those bars with me. It's my sort of my emergency fund. And um, I had an issue where some of my uh, information was stolen yesterday and I had to get it replaced. And I'm thinking, you know, if I didn't have this silver bars insurance, I may be stuck out here without a place yeah. to stay or without a way to get home. And a friend of mine that, that lives out here and I were talking about this morning, it's like, you know, you're carrying some extra cash or precious metals with you on a trip. You know, a bar yeah. like that can really bail you out because I can go, you know, to the worst case scenario, I could take that 10 ounce bar. I can yeah. go to a pawn shop. Maybe I get 60 cents on the dollar, but I can eat and I yeah. can get a hotel room yeah, you know, and, and things like that. And I'm, I'm just so glad I had that bar yeah, uh, because I have to go now and replace all my credit cards that were stolen. Sure. Or, or you can call a friend and say, "Hey, this is my security. Send me some money to right. money exchange." Or you you can do something quick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can definitely do that. So having the pressure metal is a great idea. Okay, so thanks for joining the program, Ian. We're going to cut this one just a bit short uh, because I've got uh, lots of stuff to do. But have you on the program every week? Appreciate you being on there for people that are interested in how do they get in contact with you. Yeah, we are arcsilver.com mm -hmm. and people are welcome to call me on, on my direct line. And we are also opening a store in Jackson Hole next week. So if you're in the area, do come come in and see the store get built out, ready for the grand opening, which can I announce that you're going to do the grand opening, Rob? Is that sure. Okay? okay, Rob is going to come and do the grand opening of our store in Jackson Hole. Awesome. That That's going to be a lot of fun. And I believe you told me Jackson Hole, you'll be the only one. There's some that are around, but you're really establishing something for the community they hadn't had. Yeah. And I think, Ian, you've been telling me, you know, offline, just as we have our conversations uh, several times a week, that you, you've you just been overwhelmed, really, by the demand from your local community for this. Yeah. And so now it makes sense to have a store and put your base operations there. And it's, you know, it's yes. a great development for you. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next week, Ian. Okay, bye-bye.